Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you all again. Uh, again, I'm Cyril Chavis, the RUF campus minister at Howard. And uh, again, I just want to say thank you because our ministry, uh, we don't take offerings from students. We do ministry based upon the generosity of local churches and individuals in local churches. So uh, Wallace as a local church uh, supports us and is behind us. And uh, as individuals, you, you all have given and have partnered with us in this ministry. So I just want to start off by saying thank you. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm no stranger here at Wallace, and uh, you all are no strangers to me. And so it is good to be here with you all again. I recognize many of your faces. I look forward to catching up with you all after uh, the service. But all right, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. So again, we're in the Advent season. This is where we uh, look at the coming of Christ. We look at uh, the, uh, the space between his two comings, his first coming and his second coming, and how uh, we long for God to come into our lives and to bring hope to a weary world. And so uh, really I was talking with Pastor Ryan. He, he mentioned, you know, something in the realm of Christ's birth. And so I figured, you know, Philippians chapter 2 would be fun to dive into and explore. And this passage, it doesn't just talk about the fact that Jesus was born, but it talks about the manner of his birth. It talks about the manner of his birth, the manner of his coming, and how this should shape us as a community. See, the, 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 the cool thing about Christmas is it just isn't just something uh, sentimental that we celebrate. It's meant to shape the life of the church. Every year when we celebrate Christ's birth, it ought to shape us, it ought to change us. And this is what the Apostle Paul is, is arguing and urging the Philippians to, to do. So again, Philippians chapter 2, we'll start in verse 1. Um, I'll read the passage and I will uh, uh, pray for us and we'll dive in. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any partition in the Spirit, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and, and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Would you all pray with me? Lord, thank you for this moment. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to, to be able to gather with your people. And Lord, as we gather, we fully expect you to meet us. 
Lord, you have already met us through prayers, through singing, praises, through confession, through our service to one another. And God, I ask that you would continue to meet with us through the preaching of your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill me up. Holy Spirit, I need you. Holy Spirit, I'm weak. I'm frail. I'm dust. Lord, you are powerful. You are spirit. You are glorious. God, I pray that you rest upon this place and that you would open up the hearts of your hearers, that they might not only believe your word, they might love your word, cherish your word. Lord, I pray that the word of God would bear fruit, that we would be transformed. Lord, we need change desperately. We cry out to you. We need a word from you. Lord, there's a, there are those of us in here who are, who are hurting deeply, who are in deep need of change, who feel like we have lost against our battle against sin, against the enemies of the cross, Lord. There, we, we, there are so many needs here, Lord, and we uh, are needy and we need you to meet us. But we thank you that your word just isn't an intellectual exercise, but it does things as it goes forth. So Lord, we ask that would happen now. Jesus, we love you. And thank you for loving us. Would you come to us and will we see you now? In Christ's name, amen. So American football is a very popular sport. Uh, there are 11 people on each side and one side is trying to get the ball all the way down the field and the other side is trying to prevent that from happening. Uh, but in order to, for a football team to be successful, there must be unity. Have you ever been watching American football and you're looking at it? The reason I'm saying American football is because the World Cup is happening and I don't want to offend anybody by just saying football. But have you thought about when you just watch American football and you see people running all over the field? If you didn't know what football was, you'd be like, what is happening? It's just like people are just running and hitting the nearest person to them. They're all just scrambling around. No one really knows what's going on. And then, oh, this guy who had the ball, we now see him. And he is tackled, right? Sometimes I don't even know who has the ball until the end of the play. It looks like chaos, um, but it isn't. The ball gets down the field. Why? Because they all have the playbook. They know the plays. Everybody knows their job, and they all have the same goal. And it's the coach's job to make sure everyone is operating with the same goal and on the same playbook. Unity is key to football. But not only that, they have to be of the same love, right? If you've been on a sports team, you know how important chemistry is. You actually have to like each other to play with, with each other, whether believe it or not. Uh, you, you, you want there to be sacrifice. You want there to be selflessness among the team. You want this to happen between the coaches and the coaches and the players. And even there has to be a same love between the team and the fans. The fans and, and the booster club is meant to support the team and keep them, keep them going. 
If the unity falls apart, if people aren't on the same playbook, if they're not on the same love, you'll start to have fumbles where they drop the ball and give it over to the other team. You have interceptions where they lose the ball. There's missed blocks where people are getting hit where they're not supposed to be hit. Unity is essential to winning. And family, the same thing is true of the church. Unity is essential to winning. We all have different gifts, different lives, different positions, different backgrounds, but we all need to operate under the leadership of the same coach and according to the same playbook. And that's kind of what the Apostle Paul is telling the Philippians here. He's like, you guys get on the same playbook, submit under the same coach. Uh, and Paul is likely in jail, uh, Paul is in jail, likely in Rome, writing this letter. And he's writing this letter staring death in the face, and he's writing this letter to a church who is under persecution. And he's trying to encourage them under persecution. So the, the context of this, of this uh, passage we have is verses 27 through 30. In these verses, basically, he's urging them to live according to Jesus because they are in opposition to people who oppose the gospel. He says this, uh, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. You see, did y'all know the church has opponents? This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. So he's saying, team, you have opponents and the way that you stand firm and the way that it's clear that God is with you and not with them is your unity. The fact that you can stand side by side, one mind. And so here in this passage, Paul is continuing, you see the first word in our passage is so. He says so, which means this is gonna continue to build upon what I just said. Now he starts to really dive deeper into unity. This is really a huge theme. Joy is a big theme in Philippians, but I really think unity is an even deeper theme in Philippians. He is urging them to continue to, to be light against darkness. He wants, to he wants them to operate well against their opponents. And what does he tell them? He tells them to be united. And so he gives them the secret of unity. Do you all want to know the secret of unity? He gives them the secret of unity. And that's really what uh, Christmas is about, a lot of things. But that's one of the things that Christmas is about, the secret of unity. Christmas is supposed to unite the church. Christmas is supposed to unite the church. The secret of unity is humility. The secret of unity is humility. And this is what Christmas is all about, isn't it? It's about humility. And my main point for today is this. The church must be unified, so be humble. The church must be unified, so be humble. That's it. That's the whole message. The church must be unified, so be humble. So first, I, I want to look at the how of unity, the how of unity. We just said it, humility. Uh, in verses 1 through 2, basically, this is a rhetorical way of begging the Philippians. Paul is saying, if there's any love, if there's any sympathy, if there's any encouragement, you know, he's kind of piling it on. Uh, he, and, and he is, that if isn't an actual kind of if. It, all, it almost can be translated since there is sympathy, since there is love. 
He says, please be of full accord in one mind, having the same mind, the same love. He's saying, you guys, please complete my joy by being united. And isn't this funny? Out of all the things that Paul could have wanted while he was in jail, while he was facing death uh, in the face, what's the one thing he asked? He said, how y'all can make me happy in the face of death is being united. So he wants them to be united corporately. He says, again, the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. What does this look like? This means that um, they are united in more than just how they think or the doctrine they subscribe to. It means unity that bleeds into all of life. He wants them to be united in their operating beliefs, values, their way of life, their rhythms together as a community. And what does it mean to have the same love in full accord? The same love means that they would love each other in the same way, that they would love each other in the same way that they would love themselves. Full accord means complete harmony. He's basically saying, I want you guys to get along. I don't want any divisions to be among you. But then he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So here's where the humility piece comes in. He's like, I want you guys to be united. And how does this happen? You must be humble. You must be humble. Now, what is the enemy of humility? What is the enemy of humility? Pride. Yep, you got it. Pride is the enemy of humility. So what is pride? Pride is basically being obsessed with yourself. Pride is having a self-centered life, being all about yourself. It's an inordinate amount of self-love. And this shows up in both people who we would say have high self-esteem and low self-esteem. The people who have high self-esteem are like, I'm amazing, look at me. And the people who have low self-esteem are like, I'm horrible, look at me, right? At the end of the day, it's about look at me, pay attention to me, boost me up, uh, bolster my self-esteem. And C.S. Lewis has, um, in, in his book, Mere Christianity, he talks, so he has a, I think he has a whole chapter on pride and, and, and humility. And he says that pride is one of the marks that we truly have not met God. He said the, the, the one way that, you know, someone has not encountered the awesome, glorious God is that they are prideful and puffed up to, because pride cannot survive in God's presence. There's also someone who once said, those of us who do not think we are prideful, we are among the most prideful indeed. We are all desperately prideful. Obsession with ourselves is something that sin has worked into our flesh. And when we are tempted to operate according to the flesh, pride is always at the core of it. And so what does pride look like? Our passage tells us what pride looks like. It looks like conceit. Conceit is basically uh, thinking of yourself too highly. The conceited person focuses only on their own needs, their own desires, because they think they are worth it. They think they are better than everybody else. But at the same time, these conceited people are usually the most insecure people. Those moments where I'm most conceited are my most insecure moments, if I'm really honest with myself. I'm desperate to be seen, desperate to be respected, because I really am unsure of who I am. I'm struggling with my own identity in Christ. Pride also looks like selfish ambition. Our passage talks about self-ambition. 
Ambition is basically the determination to achieve success. Now, the Bible is not against ambition. Christ wants us to be great, but he wants us to be great in a different way than we often think. The key is selfish ambition. In Christ, ambition looks like being great at serving, at giving yourself, not being served. Isn't this a a giant theme in the Bible? The prideful person only focuses on their own desires, their own goals, their own well-being, even at the expense of others. And so then the Apostle Paul talks about humility as the opposite of pride. This, again, is the key to humility. C.S. Lewis says that uh, uh, to be in God's presence is to realize that you are a small thing. Humility is the key uh, or is the... um, is the identifier that we know God and have been in his presence. And Tim Keller talks about the humble person. What does humility actually look like? If pride is a self-obsession, then humility is an obsession with others. Tim Keller talks about a humble person isn't this self-deprecating person. It's this person who is very easily interested in others. They just have an effortlessness in being interested in others. It's almost like they're not even trying. Have you ever been around a person like this? They're just not concerned with themselves. They're just concerned with you, and it just feels effortless. And the Apostle Paul encourages us to fight conceit and to fight this selfish ambition. How do we fight conceit? The passage says, by counting others more significant than yourselves. Instead of thinking of yourself as more significant than others, we think of others as more significant than ourselves. We put others' desires, others' ambitions, others' needs before our own. How do we fight selfish ambition? We look to the interests of others as well as our own interests. We look to our own interests, and and, and we don't deny our own interests, but we also look to the interests of others. And this, both of these things are actually key to any successful relationship key to the relationships that we have in the church, key to unity. And so doesn't this go against our culture? Doesn't this go against the individualism that is, uh, that, that is pervasive in our culture? Doesn't this go against the, the um, things that are elevated in our culture, self-expression at all costs, self-assertion at all costs, self-gratification at all costs? This is countercultural. This is weird in our culture. When I, when I think about pride, I think about a black hole. Are, are there any science nerds in here who, who like watch the, the History Channel shows with the black holes and then the mega black holes and then you know, all these theories about how the whole, all of existence is really surrounded around a black hole? But really a black hole is just this extremely dense um, kind of planet, sort of. I'm trying to explain it as simply as possible. Um, for, for non-science folks, I'm, I'm a non-science folk, so I shouldn't be pretending I'm like a science person. But basically, so this is actually probably as best as I can explain it. I'm pretending like I have this scientific explanation. It's this very, almost like this very dense planet that is so dense that it has this really strong gravitational pull. And anything that gets near it, it sucks it in and never lets it go. And the reason why it's called a black hole, it's, its gravitational pull is so powerful that it sucks in light. Like light can't even escape it. So you, so you don't see anything. Like, we kind of don't even know what a black hole looks like. We just call it a black hole because it's like we, we, no light escapes it. That's what pride is like. 
It's so obsessed with itself that anything that gets near it starts to wither away and be destroyed. That a selfish, prideful person gets in organizations, and we call them narcissistic, don't we? They start to destroy that organization. The prideful person gets into a community, and the community starts to wither apart because a desperately selfish person, a prideful person, is like a black hole. But also a picture of humility, I think of uh, the, uh, Dolly Parton and Whitney Houston. Um, uh, there's, there's a uh, uh, song that uh, Whitney Houston sang on behalf of Dolly Parton. It's like, and I, I'll always love you, right? That, that song. Um, and so basically I was watching an interview with Dolly Parton, um, and she was basically talking about the first time she heard it. And she said, you know, the record companies contacted her and she just sent off the song. And she said she never heard about it again. She was driving in her car and she started hearing it on the radio. And she heard, you know, the first part, the buildup, and she's like, oh, what is this song? And, you know, for, and in case y'all didn't know, she, she wrote the song, and then, uh, but you probably know the Whitney Houston version. And so, uh, and she actually originally sang the song, too. Uh, and so she's listening to it on the radio. She's like, I'm kind of familiar with this song. You know, she, she wrote it. And then, you know, Whitney Houston does her, like, in that part. And then she said she had to, like, pull over because she almost had a heart attack. And she was just like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. And she says she couldn't believe that her song that she wrote and she initially sang could, could be sung so powerfully and so beautifully. And, and, and she says this in the interview. She says, it's one of the proudest moments of my whole life. Isn't that amazing? Now, you know, I, I, you know it, it was an interview, so maybe she really went back into the green room and was really actually salty about it. But, but like, if, if what she said is actually true, that one of the proudest moments of her life was somebody else sang her song better than she did. Isn't that powerful? I think that's what humility looks like. She looked to the interests of others, not just her own. She wasn't conceited. She actually was proud that someone else's ambition succeeded her own success. This is a picture of humility. And family, a prideful church is no church. But a humble church is a healthy church. And so we must kill pride and practice humility even when it's hard. And we do this because humility allows us to be united against the forces that seek to destroy the church. So the second point I want to look at is the picture of unity. The picture, we talked about the how of unity, which was humility. What's the, uh, the picture of unity is the humiliated one. The picture of unity is the humiliated one. So being humble is hard, is it not? How do we actually be humble? How do we actually do this? Because I, I don't know about y'all, I try and try and try, but even the more I try, like the more I'm, I'm like self-obsessed. I'm like, Cyril, don't be, don't be like, you know, I'm, I'm all in my head. How, what, what can actually bring us out of ourselves and into something, a story more beautiful? It's Jesus. This more beautiful story is Christmas. And so again, um, we are commanded to be of one mind and the same mind in verse 2. And whose mind is this? Our passage says, this is the mind of Christ. In verse 5, it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This mind that is required to be humble is yours in Christ. And 1 Corinthians chapter 2 teaches us that the Holy Spirit who lives within us uh, has allowed us to understand the mind of God and adopt the mind of God. 
And adopting a mindset basically means that this shapes all of your life. The mind of Christ, Christ himself shapes all of our lives. And Christ sought to humbly serve the Father and humbly serve us. And so because we have his mind, we humbly serve the Father and humbly serve each other. Have y'all seen the movie The Matrix? Y'all remember that part where Neo, he doesn't know any kung fu or anything like that, but he like, you know, has this thing in the back of his head and they plug him in and it's like, download kung fu and download, you know, helicopter skills. And, you know, Neo cannot fly helicopters and do kung fu, and he doesn't even know how he got it, but it's really because it was downloaded into him. That's almost what it's like. Like, as, when, when, when we become Christians, we're, like, you know, pulled out of the matrix, and we have this thing put in the back of our hand. It's like, download Jesus. And, like, Jesus is downloaded. And we can now, you know, we can actually love people now, and we can actually be humble now because the mind of Christ was downloaded into us. Y'all, sorry, I'm a nerd. Black, black holes in the matrix. This, this is a very nerdy sermon. So what does this look like? In verse 6, it says, uh, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus is our example in rejecting pride. Jesus could have been conceited. He could have had selfish ambition with the Father. Because he was radiant in glory, just as glorious as God the Father and God the Spirit. And to be in the form of God doesn't just mean he was kind of wearing like a God costume. No, being in the form of God meant that he was God himself. He was equal in power and equal in glory. The son had no beginning and no end, just like the father. All the attributes that made God, God, Jesus had them. Yet it wasn't something that he, equality with God wasn't something that he insisted upon functionally. Even though the son was God and always will be God. He gave up the outward insignia of his glory. He chose to temporarily cease the function uh, or the exercise of his transcendent powers in order to be with us, to save us, in order to become a human. Now, when Jesus became a human, it wasn't like he gave up his divinity. He was still divine. Christ emptied himself by taking on something. He emptied himself by taking on humanity. Christ embraced humility. He deserved to shine forth in heaven as God in all splendor, radiance, majesty, but he came to us as a human being. The God of the universe was willing to live in a womb. He was willing to be born. Uh, the king of glory was willing to sweat, to become tired, to become hungry, to become sleepy. He was willing to touch leprosy. He was willing to wash our feet. He was willing to literally become dirty walking with us and serving with us, teaching us day by day as a Jewish rabbi. Christ could have said, Father, I will only go down there if it will be clear to them that I am God. Or he could have said, Father, I will go down to these people only if I can be rich and famous or a king in their world. But he did not have that mindset. Isn't it funny that when John the Baptist baptized Jesus, John actually had to tell people that was Jesus. Isn't that interesting? God was standing there and nobody knew it. He's like, hey guys, that's God. Come on, Jesus, come down and get baptized. And like this random, like to them, this random guy was like, oh, Jesus? Joseph said, Mary's son, the carpenter? That's humility. 
We must see the height of honor that Christ deserved, but the depth of shame that he endured side by side. People would treat him as scum and reject him. They would hate him. They would want to kill him at every step. Christ is the example of what it means to be humble. And humility led him to the point of death, dying on a cross. And Christ was crucified so that we might be saved from the wrath of God in our sins, that we might receive forgiveness if we trust in him. You see, the crucifixion wasn't just humble for Jesus, it was humble for anybody. It was one of the lowest forms of execution. And Jesus endured this for you and I. You see, Christmas is about Jesus being born, but it is also about the cross because Jesus was born to die. Jesus was willing to endure this all for the sake of love. And family, isn't this the opposite of what the church does sometimes? See, the church sometimes loses credibility because we want the height of power for others to experience the depths of humiliation. We want the heights of power for others to experience the depths of humiliation. But Christ, he set forth a different example. He experienced the depths of humiliation so that we could experience the height of his love. So family, what do we do with this? Just like Jesus, how far are we willing to to serve our brother and sister? How far are we willing to go in order to move towards others, to practice an obsession with others, that we are to love others even when we will look dumb, even when we will be embarrassed, even when we will receive no credit for it, even when we know we're right but we'll have to look wrong. This is what it means to love in a way that is humble, and this is what it means for the church to be united. But family, Jesus didn't stay there. He didn't stay on the cross. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the power of unity. Jesus underwent humility so that he might be exalted. He was exalted as King of kings and Lord of lords. All power and authority in heaven and earth and under the earth was given to him. And this is the power of our unity. We can only be united and we can only be humble because we have a king who is exalted. And he has poured out his spirit on us to actually empower us to do this. Jesus went through humiliation in order to be in the position to empower you to go through humiliation. He has given you this power. But here's the thing, the same pattern of his life is the same pattern of your life. He underwent humiliation and then exaltation. This is the pattern of the Christian life on the macro and micro level. As you humbly serve, as you experience humiliation in your day-to-day life, Christ will work life in you. As you experience the cross, you experience the resurrection. As you experience humiliation, you experience exaltation in the Christian life. As we are persecuted by the world, we actually reign over the world. As we sacrifice to kill our sin, we actually live in righteousness. And we look forward to that day when Jesus comes back, his second advent, when we with him will be exalted and will reign with him over all things. 
Family, this is what Christmas is about. Ultimately, with Jesus, we lose nothing. Because just like Jesus, we look forward to the joy that is set before us. And in the meantime, between the first and second coming, we practice humility so we can be united as a church as we look forward to his coming. Amen? Would you all pray with me? Lord, thank you for this time. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to reflect on your incarnation. Lord, we thank you that you, Lord, gave up everything to unite us, to work within us your mind, the mind that is humility. So, Lord, I pray that you would knit us together in love, that we would really be a full accord of one mind, having the same love. But we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.